this is Joe and TJ with another episode of our One Thing series. Our desire is that our One Thing series truly helps you to lead better and grow faster. Every month on our podcast, we feature a great guest always on the topic of leadership and we blast it out to you from the schoolhouse302.com. Thank you, TJ. Please share this with other leaders you know that are looking and craving to get better. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Here we are with our guest, Richard Shell. Thank you for being on the show, Richard. Hey, it's a pleasure, uh, Joe and TJ both. I really appreciate you having me. Absolutely. This episode, we are focused on achieving your goals as a value-driven leader. And with this in mind, we couldn't think of anyone better to have this conversation with than Richard. TJ, why don't you share a little bit more about him to our audience? Thanks for that, Joe. Yes, our guest this time is Richard Shell. Richard's an award-winning scholar, a teacher, and an author, at, and he's at the Wharton School of, at the University of Pennsylvania. In his work, he helps students and executives reach peak levels of personal and professional effectiveness through skilled negotiation, persuasion, influence, and the discovery of meaningful life goals. Three beliefs permeate everything that he teaches and writes. First, success begins with self-awareness. Second, success progresses through excellence in practice. And third, as he shows in his latest book, The Conscious Code, success demands a life long commitment to the highest standards of integrity. And that's where we're going to start today, Richard. Your book is fantastic. And it begins with a very compelling story about Sarah and really the conflicts that we face regarding our own integrity and values and sometimes the things that we're asked to do that don't align. You note that, that leaders and really everyone need to be a person of conscious. Can you say more about that as we begin and dive into these, these concepts of integrity and success in life? Sure, thanks, TJ. Um, yeah, I've, I'd actually, um, you know, was chair of a department that is called, uh, in part, business ethics. And I teach a course at Wharton on responsibility. And the story you referred to uh, comes out of that course. My MBA students are about 28 to 32. They come from a variety of backgrounds from all over the world. And in my course, they share stories of values challenges, some of which they have successfully navigated, or at least they think they, they did a reasonably good job of, of handling it, and some of which they regret how it worked out. Um, and uh, the, you know, the story about Sarah, I think, is a good one. And then I think it leads into what a person of conscience is. The, um, she, was, uh, she was actually a lawyer who came to Wharton to get an MBA. So she was already a fully trained professional. But the reason she left her legal profession was that in her second or third job, she finally got a really prestigious job at a California law firm. And within a few weeks, uh, she was taken aside by a partner and asked to do a legal memo on the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which is a sort of anti-bribery statute in America, trying to figure out, the partner wanted her to figure out how to justify the firm hiring a Chinese executive's son. Uh, and so she did the, uh, in that to get the business of this Chinese executive. So she did the research and she came back to the partner and said, well, it can't be done. 
it's just not allowed under the statute. And the partner said, well, I don't think you really heard me. Uh, the, the task was to come back and tell me how it could be done. And so she, you know, a junior person, new at the job, went back, tried to figure it out, couldn't change, couldn't come to a, to a principal position on how she could say this was okay, went back and said, sorry, couldn't fix it, you know, can't do it. And at this point, the partner started screaming at her that she had one more chance to get it right. And people walking by in a nearby hallway heard this screaming and they wondered what was going on. And she was very traumatized by this. She went back to her cubicle and, you know, it was lunchtime. She sort of was, her heart was beating fast. She um, decided she'd take a walk. Uh, so she went out, walked around the block, walked around the block again, and then knew exactly what she had to do. Uh, and um, what she had to do is quit. And she kept walking and never went back. And so she's telling this story in my class. You know, it's like, take this job and shove it. Uh, and um, she decided to apply to an MBA program to try to sort of pivot and find a better place where the values that she might be able to get in her next employer would align. I had the bad news of telling her that actually, you know, business is really no better. Uh, and, uh, and that she was really gonna have to learn how to stand and fight instead of cut and run. And so that's what the conscience code is about. It's how to stand and fight instead of cutting and running because you don't have that many chances to cut and run in professional life. You got family support, support you got, um, you know, uh, it's a pretty expensive exit ticket to go get a graduate degree. Uh, and right central to my advice on how to stand and fight is an identity label that uh, I got from uh, the literature. You know, most people think of people who sort of stand for their values as whistleblowers. You know, they're the people who stand up and like, you know, throw themselves off the cliff to, to nail the bad guys. Uh, and sometimes people have to get to that place and I admire the people that are able to do it. But I think the more common place where people need to take a stand is as people of conscience. That is people who bring their sense of right and wrong to work, wherever the work is, and they listen when their values are disturbed. They don't just try to erase it or turn away or minimize it. They go, you know, that's the canary in the coal mine of my soul. I need to listen to that voice. And then, and this is what my book tries to do, act skillfully, strategically, methodically, to move in the direction of the values as a leader for the values and not just have these sort of immediate knee jerk on off, leave, stay, uh, hide, uh, you know, throw a flamethrower response because all of us are challenged all the time with challenges to our values. And you need to sort of back up and go, well, okay, this has happened. And my, my advice is ask the following question. In this situation, what would a person of conscience do? And that immediately raises these values to a salience. And we all know people of conscience, our grandmothers, you know, our mentors, our favorite teacher from elementary school, people who were people of integrity, who, you know, were willing to be inconvenienced in order to stand up for their values and to reinforce them. Uh, went to bat when something went wrong. And that's what I think people need to do.
Uh, and that's, this book is really like a guerrilla warfare manual for them to use everything I know about negotiation, organizational influence, you know, all the same things that I, I, one of my recent successes at Wharton was I was in charge of the committee to change the entire curriculum. So I know something about change initiatives. I know something about bureaucracies and getting people stuck, unstuck. Uh, it takes time, it takes patience, but I know how to do it. Uh, we succeeded. Uh, it took a couple of years, but we succeeded. But it's the same exact skill set to uh, to stand up for values and to lead effectively on the on that basis. Thank you, Richard. I, we appreciate the fact that you mentioned things like bureaucracy, getting unstuck. It's it's in our worlds every day. Um, TJ and I have talked about this story of Sarah uh, before because I think also when you are younger, you you mentioned it, you're a lot less leveraged. And as you yeah. get older and you know, you don't find yourself being able to pull the plug. I wanted to ask you more of a uh, uh, introspective question for the individual. How do you, and this, this may actually be silly, but it's almost before getting to this point. How do people begin to define their own values and what they would ethically stand by? And I know that might sound silly to some degree, but I think what happens also, we get catapulted into our professions. Um, we may have different beliefs and faith, like grounded in faith. But sure. I've also discovered where some people aren't 100% sure what they think. Yeah. And that could be as dangerous, if not more. Um, is there a tool in the beginning to start figuring out, this is what I do stand for? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a lifelong journey. And I, I don't think you really are born with a set of values that you know you stand for. I think life delivers challenges and crises where you learn from your reactions and your responses what you stand for. And sometimes you stand for stuff that you didn't even realize you stood for. Um, I, when I was younger, when I was in my 20s, uh, I was challenged by the Vietnam War as, a, uh, as an occasion. Uh, and I was signed up to go over to Vietnam and engage in that war. And I, my dad was a general in the Marine Corps. My grandparents had both been in the military. I was like a career brat in the military. But when I was in my 20s, I realized that it was my choice. I had to make a choice. And all those values had been baked in for me. I'd never really thought or questioned them. But then at the time I you know, got to this this moment in my life, I, I made a, a careful look at it and I realized that I couldn't go along with it. I, did, I had no quarrel with the Vietnamese people. I thought the war was immoral and I just had to take a different direction. So I became a pacifist. Now I never would have been a pacifist had the Vietnam War not called the question. So I think people are given life challenges to discover their values sometimes. Uh, and they mature and grow through that discovery process. In the book, I think most of the values that I find people talk about the most as challenging and that call on them to step up, um, I have an acronym for it. I call it CRAFT, C-R-A-F-T, the craft of ethics is sort of the way I present it. And so the, these five categories are first, compassion, that's the C, and those are well-being, protect the innocent, uh, you know, help people who are under uh, stress and their well-being is being challenged or they're being injured in some way. So compassion-related values are the first ones. And those are, that's just a basic instinct to be a, 
uh, a creature who helps a fellow creature who's suffering. Uh, the second is respect. And, uh, you know, I think people do have enormous challenges in the school systems, uh, standing up for values related to respect. And that could be ethnicity, it could be community, it could be age, it could be all kinds of things that where they feel disrespected and uh, minimized, and they need to learn how to stand up. And of course, this is where um, collections of people, coalitions, uh, unions, other people that come together to, to join with each other uh, and stand for respect together can become powerful. It's very hard to do all this by yourself, I think. Uh, so that's R. A is accountability. And, uh, and we see a lot of, of disputes uh, coming up in the workplace, both school systems and businesses and organizations of holding people accountable. You know, they, they, they're supposed to be doing this. They're not doing this. They're not step, stepping up and protecting us. They're not, uh, you know, uh, keeping the, the wolves at bay uh, that are uh, coming into our classrooms and disrupting uh, the, what's going on here. And it's someone, you know, there are people who are accountable for that. And, and the accountability is huge. Um, and then CRA, FT, the last two, F, fairness. Uh, this is fairness in compensation, fairness in the duties you're asked to perform, fairness in the load and who's carrying it and who's sharing it. Um, very important values and very uh, important to you know, have a sense of justice uh, when it comes to the workplace, no matter what it is. And finally, truth. Uh, truth values, you know, you're being lied to uh, by the administration or by the school board. Uh, uh, you know, people are not being clear or straight or transparent. Uh, these are important issues. And how can you trust people when you don't know uh, what version of the truth you're getting? Uh, and so I think these craft values are really the ones you need to focus on at work. We all have spiritual values. We all have values that are personal. And those are really important, but they're very individualized and people have different places where they come down on them. And I think I wouldn't presume to tell someone that they have a value that I disagree with and I call illegitimate. I just don't believe that's my role. But I think these craft values are not really strictly speaking religious, but they underpin a lot of religious values. And they do come up a lot of work. So I would say, look at those craft values and, 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 and just, you know, when something happens and your bells go off, this is wrong. Ask yourself, which of these is this tripping? Which of these tripwires is it tripping? And that helps you kind of categorize and be more strategic about what the problem is and what you need to do to fix it and who you need to bring it to. Richard, let's just talk a little bit more about strategize what you just mentioned and strategy for leaders. I love craft. We'll refer that, uh, refer to that in the show notes, the craft of ethics. You mentioned that it's way easier to do this in groups and in a collection of people, but we do have leaders on this call who will feel very isolated. They'll feel like they're an individual fighting a, a battle on their own that they sometimes feel like you know, Rambo out there doing the thing um, and trying to, you know, really live to their core values, especially in schools for kids and to do what's right. But they do feel sometimes alone in that, in that scenario. I really like the fact that you've given us this question to ask in this situation, what would a person of conscience do? But can you say a little bit more about what would a person of conscience do if you're yeah. in that situation? Yeah. What are some tips and tricks and tools 
to stand and fight versus what I think a lot of people do feel like doing cut and run. I, I, I yeah. love that analogy. Yeah. So, um, of course, no set of tools is guaranteed for success. So let's start there. It's just about making the effort and uh, not just, you know, hiding in a closet and closing the door and hoping it'll all just go away um, or ducking responsibility uh, and just, you know, just sort of minimizing your role. So uh, two things. Uh, first, I have a whole chapter on this. And when you describe this lonely leader kind of like a, uh, a hero out of To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, you know, standing up for justice all by themselves. I think that's false. Um, even in To Kill a Mockingbird, um, um, we're not talking about someone who acted alone. Uh, and I think it's really important for people to realize that humans are social creatures. And no matter how isolated you feel, you have allies in your life. You have allies in your system. Uh, it's really a question of being more strategic and purposeful in seeking them out, seeking their counsel, sharing the burden that builds your resiliency. It also confirms that you're right uh, and that you are justified in taking the actions you are and in feeling the anxiety you feel. It's not that you're crazy or weak or um, anything. You've got someone in your head with you. Now, it could be your partner at home. It could be your mentor in another school district. It could be your teacher from ed school. It could be, uh, a could be, uh, you know, somebody else in the school system or even in the actual schoolhouse uh, that you uh, that you use as a sounding board that you use as uh, some trust and trusted support. So I think the, I call it the power of two. You know, anybody who faces a values conflict alone is going to be isolated, anxious, uh, powerless. Uh, you know, it's going to be really hard. Exponential increase in your confidence and power is have one ally. Uh, man, go to three, four, and five, and we're talking about scales of effectiveness that are reached. Um, and it even goes to going to a meeting. You know, you go to a meeting alone and you're the only voice in the room for whatever the position is that you have to espouse. You know, you're going to be beaten up and chewed up and thrown out the window. Go with two people, it's harder. And, um, and I think you have, that's what you have to do by thinking strategically that I'm, I am so much weaker alone than I am in company uh, that you just, you know, an effective way to be a leader is to find the way not to be alone. Uh, so that's number one. The other tool is something I call the Oda loop. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's a combat pilot strategic or tactical template, O-O-D-A loop. You can find it in Wikipedia. It's what combat pilots do in aerial combat. And it stands in the combat context, it stands for observe, orient, decide, act, and then loop. So in a, it's a loop when you're in aerial combat, you're literally going in a circle and coming back and trying to get on the tail of your uh, counterpart. But in my schema, I've changed it a little bit, but the Oda loop is a way of thinking strategically and systematically about what to do. You're a person of conscience, you've got your ally. Now, what are you gonna do? Number one, observe. So that's the same. We got to know what it is and we got to give it a name. So that's where craft comes in handy. 
we have a problem here protecting our students' well-being, uh, and uh, we need to protect their health. You know, that's a current issue, and there's a lot of controversy about it. Uh, so we need to gather uh, ourselves to focus on that well-being issue. This is not political. This is not uh, uh, some airy-fairy thing. This is about whether children live or die. Uh, and that's really important to keep that in mind. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, you, you have that uh, crystallized, observe. Uh, second O, own. So now we get to the place where, okay, I'm taking responsibility for this. This is going to be a problem that I'm going to consider my own. Now, as a leader, the, the ownership may already be vested in you, but you may be a teacher and you may have uh, a conflict over this. And you may think, well, it's the principal's job. Uh, but no, I don't think it's anybody's job. I think it's everybody's job <laughs> to come together around these values. Uh, now, that doesn't mean you're going to do anything. It just means you, you, you have a sense of responsibility about it. You know, you're part of the team that's owning this. Three, decide. So now you go and list the options. What are the things we could do? Uh, we could go have a meeting with the chairman of the school board. We could go have a meeting with uh, the head of the PTA. We could go have, we find the most sympathetic ear from an, a constituency that is important. And we use our social network to set up a meeting. So that's one of the, one of the decision points. We say, maybe that's the smartest thing to do. So then we do that uh, by acting. So that gets you to A. So we're observing, we're owning, we're deciding among options, and we're acting. But all values conflicts, as, as people in your community know better than almost anybody else, except maybe nurses and retail workers, uh, values conflicts are multi-stage events. They don't just have one move, game over, move on. And that's where the loop comes in. So you take action and then you observe what happens. What's the, what's the response? And you take that as the next opportunity to start the odor loop again. And you just keep moving relentlessly, purposefully, incrementally uh, to advance the issue to a place where you think it's uh, either been resolved or at least it's better. Uh, you've gotten an advance on it. So the power of two and the OTA loop are the two tools that I would recommend for leaders to think more strategically and more successfully and not just reactively about what it is that's coming down on their heads. Tremendous advice, Richard. We will definitely reference those. I love both the power of two and the Oda loop. It makes an enormous amount of sense. Also, as you said, that the effective way of a leader is to find a way not to be alone. I think that is powerful um, when you realize that there is an onus on the leader there as well. But I love this Oda loop. We are struggling with a few things in education, as you know. Um, even just things like uh, driver shortages for transportation sure. and, and how do we effectively educate students when we can't even get them to school. So this, I, I like that framework and the onus, especially like, let's not jump to decisions. Let's just face, uh, just first own it right. as educators. Let's own it, understand it. So powerful stuff. This perfect segue into our next section, um, especially with the power of two. Who is one person or group who you follow, Richard, for either knowledge or inspiration? And where could we find them? Um, well, you know, I'm an academic. Uh, and so my job is to uh, 
to you know follow lots of people. I would say that the single most uh, inspirational uh, thinker that you know, setting aside spiritual uh, realms, because uh, I'm a, a very spiritual, not very religious, but very spiritual person. But in terms of just knowledge of for effectiveness in organizations, I would say Robert Cialdini. Uh, is the guy that I have uh, the greatest uh, sort of respect for, I've learned the most from, and I've been able to use uh, the work that he does in much more on a daily basis than almost anybody else. His name is C-I-A-L-D-I-N-I, -I -I, Cialdini. He's a social psychologist at uh, Arizona State, uh, or University of Arizona, I'm sorry. And he wrote a wonderful book called Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. And he's written a number of other books uh, around similar themes. And um, he's just a fabulous scholar and a very practical thinker. And so he's my, he's my go-to guy. I, I did have the pleasure after I wrote my book on negotiation where I reference him uh, and use some of his concepts. I had the pleasure of hearing uh, an interview with him. Um, this was years ago, but uh, he was asked if you had to save you know, three books out of your library because your house was on fire, which, uh, which three would you take? And he actually named my negotiation book as one of the three he would take. And I know that his influence book will be the first on my list. So, uh, so that was very satisfying uh, as a matter of being a disciple uh, whose guru uh, actually recognized that uh, I advanced the ball. That's an awesome story for you, Richard, to have. And, uh, we love it. I would typically go next with a follow-up question, but I know Joe's probably just dying to say something about <laughs> this book because he, like Tim Ferriss always asks a question to his, to his um, interview, in his interviews, which is a book that you most gifted? I think Joe would answer influence. Um, oh, cool. So Joe, any follow-up for Richard on that, on that? segment yeah cj spot on you you definitely hit a, a happy nerve there richard this is persuasion i was first introduced to uh several years ago and i wholeheartedly agree um the follow-up i actually just did a book study with an individual i work with um who is in a senior leadership position um, to start navigating conversations differently with different groups and persuasion was the go-to book. Do you have a suggestion with a book like that to learn the skills? Because that is not something you know that's cover to cover. Let me read yeah. it. Very similar to your negotiation book, Springboard. Like These are not books you're picking up and reading at 9 p.m. I mean, this is full-blown engagement. Um, to, and then to practically build them into your repertoire of skills when really working with individuals and influencing them. So any thoughts yeah. or ideas around how you approach that? Yeah, no, I actually teach two executive education courses for executives at Wharton multiple times a year. One is on negotiation, but the other is on influence and persuasion. It's called the art and science of selling ideas. So I would, I, you know, this is self, uh, I'm blowing up my own trumpet, but I have a book called The Art of Woo, uh, Wu stands for winning others over, the art of Wu, uh, using strategic persuasion to sell your ideas. And in that book, I actually take a strategic approach to moving an initiative through an organization uh, and thinking through exactly what the steps are 
who you ought to talk to, in what order, what do you do when you have a conflicting belief with someone as opposed to a conflicting interest with them, uh, and really try to open up uh, the, the sort of opaque box of the organization so you can move through it more strategically and more thoughtfully. And, and Cialdini's sort of baked into that. So I just took it and advanced it into, uh, you know, being a, a thoughtful persuader uh, who has to run a campaign inside an organization to get an idea through. Uh, that's really the model for that book. So I'll recommend my own book. <laughs> I think that's great. And we'll definitely link back to the, to the book in the show notes. I think that the way you describe that is going to resonate with a lot of our listeners, like to effectively run a campaign with, within your own organization to get a thought through, even if you are the leader. Right. Yes. Like oh no. Leaders, leaders don't control anything. That's the first thought that every everybody thinks, oh, I'll be in charge, then I'll get it done. And absolutely not. I mean, I teach a course at Warden for Army two-star generals, you know, and you would think, well, they can get it done. I mean, they look at that, they've got two stars. They come to Wharton to learn persuasion. <laughs> because when you're a two-star general, you know, who do you have to influence? You have to influence people who aren't in the military. You have to go to Congress. You have to get money. You have to influence the people in the local community who, who you know, are worried about the base and the way the soldiers are behaving at the bars. You have to, you know, uh, you're on, you're in, uh, you're in, you're a diplomat in some foreign country, essentially. So your stars do you no good at all if you can't be persuasive. Same for principals. Same for superintendents. Same thing. The higher yeah. you go, the more you have to persuade. Yeah, the, almost like the higher you go, it's an inverse relationship with power. <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, you do, you know, you can like set salaries somewhere up the line. Uh, and, you know, that's irreplaceable. <laughs> but, uh, but, 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 you know, I think you're right. You never have enough. Let's put it that way. Awesome, awesome. A um, couple of books there too we'll link to Influence, Persuasion, your book. What's one thing in your opinion that people should try to do on a regular basis that might make a difference in their day or life? Meditate. Uh, I spent time when I was a youngster, uh, meaning in my 20s and 30s, in Buddhist uh, meditation centers in Sri Lanka and South Korea. I learned meditation as a, a practice, a very intensive practice, but in a stressful world where your adrenaline is going to be charged in unexpected ways at times. Some kind of relaxation uh, habit uh, that precedes the day, as opposed to uh, you have to activate in the middle of it, I think grounds you and helps you kind of be open and a little more have a more equanimity about what's happening in front of you. So it doesn't knock you off your direction or your point of view. You keep your composure more readily uh, if you have just a moment to reflect. And I, you know, I there are a thousand ways to meditate, and uh, and you know, I I I don't have a, a favorite. I think there's some people are body people and they meditate better by running. Some people are mind people and they meditate more by sitting. Uh, you know, some people are. Um, you know, they, they like to have a focus, so they meditate better when they have something to focus on. Other people, more um, mindfulness and sort of obs observation, uh, and they meditate better by having 
mindfulness meditation. So there are a lot of different ways to do it. And prayer, you know, uh, where you give um, your problem, uh, or at least you're humble enough to say that you're not the only one who's going to be solving the problem uh, when one comes up, and to be able to share that with uh, the, the power that you see is greater than yourself. And that, again, it gives you the same sense of grounding and equanimity when the, when the hurricane hits. Appreciate you mentioning that it is dynamic and it can be in multiple forms. It's something I actually struggled with early on because I, I, I could not sit still like that. And yeah. I thought that was the only way. And I had a, a friend tell me, you know, well, Joe, what do you really enjoy? And at the time it was swimming, which okay. I do truly enjoy. And I, that is one place I find that I could actually lose myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, that was something that was introduced to me as well. Don't try to fit it into a construct that like, just allow it and seek, you know, really what the purpose of meditation is. So thank you for sharing that. Richard, what's one thing that you want to know or be able to do that you don't already? Um, it's actually my next project. Um, I'm really interested in how people come to change their beliefs. And um, as a persuasion scholar, I know that very, people very seldom change their beliefs just because someone else comes along and says, here's the reasons you ought to change your mind. And so, oh, well, thank you. That, that, that's all it took. You know, I've been waiting for you to come along. It doesn't work like that. But people do change their beliefs. And people who don't believe in vaccination, some of them change their minds and they accept vaccination. People who you know, believe in some conspiracy theory uh, can come out of that and stop believing in a conspiracy theory, or they can have, uh, you know, some people get lost in cults sometimes, and they come out of it, and they, and they are get become free of the cult. So I'm studying how is it that people get free of a belief that's self-defeating or is alienating them from their uh, community or their loved ones. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I don't know the answer. And so I'm studying it. But that's the one thing I wish I knew. That's awesome. We can't wait to uh, see what comes out of that project. So hopefully we can learn that from you as well. What's one thing that led to or continues to support your growth as a leader that others might be able to replicate? Um, well, the, you know, this is a very thick book, <laughs> uh, not that I've written, but that I've been in the chair of a department, I've led community initiatives, I've, you know, done this curriculum thing. So I've gone around the horn a few times, but I, I can, I, I knew you were going to ask this question and I decided really the answer, the best answer for me is one of Stephen Covey's seven habits. And the one that I would latch onto is seek first to understand and then to be understood. And I think that is the thing that is probably hardest to remember because you're always trying to sell, you know, and, 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 and get your idea across to them. Whereas it takes effort to really be on the humble side of that and, you know, tell me what I don't know and fill me in on your perspective and help me understand your experience before you leap to the job of trying to get them to do what you want them to do. Uh, so, I think it's, I think it's, that's just a really good habit. And you know, the difference between leaders who do listen and leaders who don't. Uh, and it's just a whole different relationship with a leader who listens. 
uh, and a whole kind of um, uh, confidence you have in them. Because even if they make a decision you don't like, you know that they've heard you and that they process what they've heard. So I would say seek first to understand and then to be understood. It's almost uncanny that you mentioned that, Richard. I kind of said jokingly to my executive team this past week, I'm not sure I should read another book until I master Covey Seven Habits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot of uh, wisdom in there, a lot of wisdom. Yeah. So this ties back to what you really said your next project is and, um, you know, really looking forward to that, as TJ mentioned. What's one thing you used to think that you don't anymore? <laughs> yeah, this was easy, actually, for me. Um, and it, it kind of counterintuitive in a way. I used to believe that setting goals was a form of magic. I used to believe it, it, that, you know, goal setting is such a, you know, a thing. And that, and if you read so many success books and so many achievement books, and they all say, set the goal, and then it manifests itself, you know, uh, uh, and, you know, if you can, if you can think it, it can happen and, and, you know, visualize the goal in the, in the same way that, um, say, Olympic athletes, when they win their medal round in the swimming competition, they interview them afterwards and, and they say, you know, tell us about how you came to do this. And they say, oh, I've been visualizing this goal since I was 10 years old. And, and you go, wow, that must be the way it works. You know, you, they, you visualize every day, a thousand times a day for 20 years and bingo, you get to be an Olympic athlete and you win a gold medal. What what I learned is that there's a huge amount of sample bias and who gets interviewed uh, about this, and they all tend to be the ones who have this little story to tell, whereas they're not interviewing the 400,000 people who set the goal when they were four and visualized it every day, and not only didn't get a gold medal, but didn't even get to swim after they were 15 years old. Uh, so I think the one thing I've learned um, that I used to think that I don't think anymore is that goals are not magic. Uh, I, I've come to believe that the that the the way things get done is to follow Napoleon's battle strategy, uh, and Napoleon's battle strategy was very simple. He said, "Engage, and then see what happens." So yeah, it helps to have goals. I'm not a I'm a fan of setting goals. I have a little list I keep every day, and I try to check things off. But it ain't magic. Uh, you've got to you've got to be persistent. You've got to change your mind. You've got to change directions. You've got to be flexible. You've got to change your goal. You've got to, you know, move in the direction that wisdom dictates, not in the direction that some preordained goal that someone set or you set twenty years ago dictates. Um, so goals are not magic. That's my abandoned belief. That's great. It's also fun to abandon beliefs in general, as we learn and grow. And I think um, engage and then see what happens is a great place to end. Uh, we'll definitely have that in the show notes. This has been a fantastic interview, Richard. Thank you so much for being on the show. Is there anything else, parting words, final comments, a request that you would like to add today for our listeners? I just would go back to the, where we started and, and just remind them in the huge amount of conflict that the education community is facing now. Uh, they're, they're the vortex of the culture wars. Uh, they're betwixt and between constituencies that just can't seem to find common ground. I think that they have to anchor on their own conscience 
And I would just ask them to reflect on uh, themselves as people of conscience uh, with their own you know, sense of right and wrong and to just make sure that they don't get knocked off of that basic value system. Because once you start doing stuff that you know violates your conscience, um, you become alienated from yourself, you become depressed, uh, you start losing motivation, and then you're no good to anybody. So I think, I think that's really important thing to just, you know, think about, anchor on, be humble about, and be persistent on. Thank you for that. It's a great um, place to stop. It's awesome, awesome reflection for our listeners, our leaders, principals, teachers, or primary audience, but just leaders in general, reflecting on what you stand for, your values, um, and be a person of conscious. There you have it. Another podcast. Don't forget to follow our blog at theschoolhouse302.com for blog posts, podcasts, and video blogs, always on the topic of leadership. And we hope you enjoyed this one thing series on being a person of conscious and so much more with Richard Shell. Richard, thank you for being on the show. Uh, TJ and Joe, really great pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to be with you. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Joe, you know what leaders need these days? What's that, TJ? Sleep. A good night's rest. Self-care. We've heard it over and over and over again from our guests on the podcast that you can't pour from an empty cup. Leaders need sleep. One of the number one ways you can replenish yourself and lead better is a good night's sleep. I hear you, but you know what? I'm so tired. I don't even like thinking about you know, getting a good night's sleep. But, you know, do tell, how do we go about getting better sleep? Well, I think that's part of your problem is you need a better bed. It always starts with the bed. That's why we recommend Ghost Bed, our sponsor with 30,000 plus five-star reviews. Their patented sleep and cooling technology gets you to sleep faster and longer than any other bed. That's right. And their handcrafted mattresses come with a hundred and one night at home sleep trial and a two times the industry standard warranty. They're absolutely certain that their beds will work for you. And with free shipping within 24 hours of your purchase, it's fantastic uh, support from the company. And guess what? Just for being a listener at the Schoolhouse 302, you get 30% off with the use of our code SH302 at checkout. You go to ghostbed.com. You get some sleep so that you can lead better and grow faster. You use SH302 at checkout. Absolutely. And last thing, even if you don't need a bed, you're thinking, wow, I would love to try out ghost bed, but I just bought a bed. Refer someone else for a bed at ghostbed.com. You'll get a hundred bucks for helping someone else get a good night's rest. Wow. That's 30% off with SH302 code at ghostbed.com. A hundred bucks for your referral. If you get somebody else a good night's sleep, better sleep for you, better leadership, ghostbed.com. You can't beat it. Ghostbed.com. Mm-hmm.